Hello everyone, today my guest is composer Stefan Gregory. Stefan actually first started his career as a member of the Australian indie rock band Faker before eventually moving to writing music for theater and opera and ballet and then making his big screen debut with Netflix's new film The Dig. It's a really lovely score that he's done. It's quite calming, relaxing, and a, a very good separate listening experience. But obviously it also works quite well in the film itself. And I'll be honest, I wasn't particularly interested in the film when I first read about it. It's about the excavation at Sutton Hoo in 1939, a, an old Saxon burial mound in the east of England. But it's a really engrossing film, in large part because of Stefan's score. But of course we don't only talk about the film, we talk about his journey, his approach to film music, and Stefan gives quite a good history lesson about opera, its growth and development, and what parallels that might have with the growth and development of film and film music as well. Now, we are nearing the end of the first season of the Film Score podcast. Be on the air for uh, maybe another month and a half with new interviews and then taking a break, but you'll hear more news on that as it gets closer. As always, you can find more information about me on my website, thefilmscore.com, or on social media at thefilmscore, and you can find more information about Stefan on his website as well. Now, have a watch of the film, and then sit back and take a listen to this. So, Stefan, I'm so glad you're able to join me today. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. Good. So, your first feature film, The Dig, just released on Netflix, which we're going to get to in a second, but you've actually had a really interesting journey into becoming a film composer. First, being in the Aussie rock band Faker, composing for theater and ballet for a while, and then moving into film. So can you tell me a little bit about that journey and how you went from a, an indie rock background to where you are today? Yeah, I don't really know how I ended up here. I mean, my, I actually did a degree in maths at university, and I worked in that area for a long time, and <clears throat> I still love that that world, actually. Um, but I guess I was always hanging out with the, the artsy, weirdo crowd at university and from that I sort of found my way eventually into writing a lot of music and doing sound for theatre productions. Before that, yeah, I, I, I did I did play in the rock band and was in the jazz world and but I guess I kept those contacts and um, eventually found my myself doing theatre work, which I still do and I still make my my money doing that stuff. And I just love it. And I guess it's just an opportunity for a composer these days, you know, uh, if, if you want to write music and you want to be paid for it, um, there's only certain avenues you can take. And that one just worked well for me for whatever reason. Have you noticed a big difference between composing for film and composing for theater and ballet? Because I think for, for most people, for me at least, I've seen a few ballets and a few theater productions. But yeah. particularly theater, I don't think a lot of people necessarily think about what sort of music go music or sound design, because I know you do that as well. Yeah. What what's involved in that? Yeah, I mean, 90% of it is the same, right? Like, it's the same essential job, writing for theatre and writing for film. 
you are trying to help tell a story with the music and the music is subservient to the greater good of the of the project as well you can't get too carried away with your own egotistical ideas because it no one's going to like that actually you, you have to do what what works for the for the piece and so that's all the same but when it comes down to the sort of nitty-gritty detail of it i found some interesting differences it's almost like when you get down to the detail of it it's the opposite of, of theater or something and it's to do with truth and the way that you interpret film um, as opposed to the way you interpret theater in theater you always know that it's fake and the music you write for theater has to be more ironic is not quite the right word but it has to be there has to be a sort of idea behind it or, or, or a cleverness or a different take whereas in film music the music you write has to really be so true to the film it has to really be absolutely a part of it, it has to be part of the sound and and so the music that i would write for film if i put that in a theater show most of the time it would just be cheesy and it, and it, and it wouldn't work it you'd be seen to try to put film on stage or you'd be seen to try to put tv on stage or something as it would come across but in film because all the elements are integrated and in the, in the, you hear a sound of a footstep and you see a a foot falling and and even though it's all fake we we believe it is absolutely true and so the music has to be true in a slightly different way so although the 90% of the job is the same there's this interesting thing that happens in the detail which is which is different hmm. that's very interesting and it's it's funny because in the lead up to this i was almost thinking the opposite that in some right. ways watching a theater production it's a, it's as if the 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 story and the characters like that's that's truth that's this realism and yet it it makes a lot of sense because in so many ways no matter what the film is whether it's a, a period piece like the dig something contemporary or something set five hundred years in the future in a different galaxy like it's it's trying to immerse you and eventually switch your brain off into thinking no this is actually just happening in front of me yeah that's right. I mean, there are many ways to describe it. I mean, that's just how I describe it. it. You could probably describe it the opposite to that and still be true or something, but this is me trying to kind of latch onto something I'd, I've discovered. But um, yeah, you do believe it's true. Even if it's even if it's a film set in the prehistoric times, you you believe that the cameras were actually there thousands of years ago, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's one of the problems with especially watching things at home and how easy it is to be distracted by everything around you or your phone because once there's anything external it breaks that immersion yeah 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 it's true so the dig tells the story of the excavation of Sutton Hoo in East Anglia in the UK in the eve of World War II being from Australia I, I thought that that was a very kind of surprising choice for you as a <laughs> as a composer how did you get brought into this project uh, I mean it wasn't my choice do that film it wasn't like I had a thousand films that were being offered to me and I chose this one don't get me wrong it's, it's a topic which I really enjoyed um, writing for and particularly writing about the landscape and and the unusual topic of, of archaeology but it's more than that I mean it's about the connection to uh, connection of humanity to land and to time and to our place in in history and and the sort of but uh, I mean the, how I got involved in this film is really just through the director, Simon Stone. I've been working with him for a long time on theatre productions. And this was his second 
feature film and he asked me to work on it and I was very happy to be involved. Very cool. And that was, I wasn't sure because I, I knew that Simon had done theater work, but as far as I know, there, there isn't like an IMDb of theater so I could check, you know, cross-check all of your productions. That's really interesting. I mean, and that's a great opportunity. Yeah, it was a fantastic opportunity. It's funny how there's not as much crossover between theater and, and film. And you're right, there is no IMDb of theater productions. So people often don't know much about that world. But um, yeah, we've been working for a long time in theater. Yeah, and I actually do think it's a shame because I've, I've heard a few pieces written just for theater. Uh, PJ Harvey did one maybe two years ago that I, I haven't seen the production, but I mean, the music was great. And so it would, it would be so nice to have more exposure to a, a broader audience because obviously, just like in film, your first goal is for writing for theater is to boost the production itself. But in some ways, not that, not that it's a waste, but it's too bad that it doesn't get to live on in certain circumstances. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that. It's one of the things I've really enjoyed about working on film is that there's this permanent artifact left over. People are going to be able to watch this film for as long as the technology to play it exists, whereas all the theatre productions I work on are gone to time. You know, they might be remounted or to a... I mean, it's the beauty of theatre is that it is ephemeral and that it, it disappears and that it can be different from night to night. I mean, that's absolutely its strength as well. But after having done that for so many years now, it is nice to finally have something that I can hold on to and, and show people and say, yeah, look, see, I really do, <laughs> really do have work that I've made because, yeah, there isn't much of a record of a lot of those theatre productions. Yeah, and then if you watch a recorded theatre production or recorded ballet, it it's just not the same. It's really different. I mean, it's great for those of us who work in the industry and we can see a show that we haven't seen, but it's just not the same experience. It's You can't really judge a show from, from that experience. Although some of these efforts that, like the National Theatre are doing these streaming live productions and, and a group called ITA, which used to be Tonyal Group Amsterdam, who I've done work for, they've, in the COVID era, they've started streaming some of their productions in very interesting ways and... I think that's quite effective, actually. There's something there. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves. But um, declaring the cameras a lot more and, and it's still being a live show that you're seeing, but, but you're seeing all the, the camera work happening live, which is really interesting, actually. Seeing a live film be made, really, yeah. Will this be the first time that something that you've written for a, a medium like this is actually going to be released? I guess I don't know. Are, are there plans for your score for The Dig to, to come out separately? At the moment, it... I'm not sure. At the moment, they're saying they're not going to release it. It's sort of in Netflix's hands, actually, which surprised me because I didn't think it would be um, a big deal. There's been a lot of interest from labels, actually, in releasing it as well and from, and from people writing to me. But, and I thought if that happens, it would be, I'd be very lucky. And I thought, oh, yeah, we'll just release it. But actually, it turns out that's not the case. Um, it's sort of in Netflix's hands. And for them, it's not really their thing, the music. So they're less interested in it. So I'm campaigning. I'm working on it. <laughs> I still hope that it will come out, but yeah. I hope so too. I Getting a, the, the separate digital copies of it, it, it works well in film, obviously, but it's also, I mean, frankly, it's a really pleasant listen on its own. There, there are times it's where it's vaguely reminiscent of, of some of the styles of like Philip Glass or Max Richter, where it, it creates this immersive atmosphere that you can almost fall in and get lost into. I mean, it's something that is really nice to listen to separately. So keep our fingers crossed. 
Yeah, and it doesn't, it's not always that way with film scores. I think I read on your website, actually, you said it's really important to watch the film and not just listen to the score. Because it's true, like the music you write for a film, it's it's for the film. And it's not to say you can't listen to it outside because it can often be really great to do that. But if it does work out of the context of the film, it's sort of like a lucky side effect. Exactly. Um, and it shouldn't be, shouldn't have to be that way. Ultimately, that's its purpose. And sometimes you can listen to a score on its own and it just sounds like droning tones. And you go, well, this is terrible yeah. to listen to, but yeah. it wasn't composed for you to listen to it on its own. No. It was supposed yeah. to support a film. And if it does that, then that's great. And everything else, like you said, is that's just gravy. Yeah, that is right. I mean, some of us like listening to strange droning tones as well. <laughs> I do. I do sometimes, but yeah. I do too. I before I Before I got interested in film music, I listened to a lot of metal and experimental music so oh, okay i i have a a slightly different musical interest background than a lot of other people who are into film music ah right okay interesting yeah one of my first theater scores was a sort of ambient uh drone metal score you could say um, it involved playing live electric guitar to a sort of six or seven hour work or actually it was only two hours of that work of the war of the roses which is sort of a landmark production here at the sydney in sydney See, that, that just makes it even worse, the ephemeral nature of the theatre, because, like, I would love to listen to that. Like, two hours of just droney metallic noises and electric guitar. And Shakespeare on top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I've, I was wondering is the dig kind of operates an interesting time. And, and you mentioned this. One of the themes throughout it is kind of the continuity of time and how both us and our present can look back in time at the, the physical artifacts that exist and find out where we came from, but also those will continue to exist and what we leave behind will continue to exist. And so the film takes place in 1939, but it also obviously has a strong connection to the 6th century, which obviously leads to a lot of possible ways to go with the music. So how did you end up landing on the, the sound palette that you chose? I don't know quite how we ended up here, but that is certainly one of the more interesting philosophical aspects of the film. And I mean, you're right to talk about that, you know, the idea of the, the permanence of time in a way, you know, the sort of Buddhist Nietzschean idea of eternal return, that everything that's happened is is permanent and that we it will keep happening forever or something. And it's sort of a strangely uplifting idea for me. It's It gives you sort of hope in the godless age we live in or something that there's I don't, I don't know but how do we end up at the sound palette i mean we started in a very different place in some ways simon had a very strong idea to use music of the period like orchestral music of the period and i thought that was a great starting point i always suspected that concert hall music was never going to quite work for the film because films need film music which functions in a different way but i generated a lot of material in that world but when it came to sort of putting it into the edit I don't know for whatever reason it didn't quite work and it became clear that we really needed music to do certain things in the film you know function in really particular ways and and so I, I, I wrote music to to really conquer uh, certain tasks I guess in the film and, and writing the music to evoke the landscape and that sort of stuff was a great pleasure and it was sort of easy funnily enough you know it was it's easy to write music which for me that that was inspired by that, but communicating the subtler philosophical aspects of the film, which is what you were asking about, was one of the more difficult parts because 
it's not a straight ahead sort of James Bond plot or something that the, the plot twists in the film are subtle and and so it took a, a while of watching it and working with it to find out what the important moments were and the tone that they needed and this philosophical idea that you've focused in on is one of the most important parts of it and so there's some music which sort of scores that and reoccurs through the film and in a way that philosophical idea did inspire the music to the film actually or the more subtle of music to the film yeah so I mean, how were you able to channel the philosophic nature and kind of the the cyclical nature of everything into the music itself i mean i and frankly i, I realize how abstract we're getting at this point <laughs> i don't know actually i mean i don't even know if i do that successfully but at a simple level there's some really intimate piano music in the film and that's appropriate for the moments where there's these intimate interactions between two people at basil and mrs pretty and and um it's it's reflective and it's very personal and it's 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 lonely and meditative and you could imagine someone the feeling that someone is having at the piano maybe while they're playing that music and that helps communicate that idea to the audience hopefully but then there's two other modes in the film too there's this, there's this chamber strings you know and then there's the bigger orchestral moments and they really function in a very different way i mean there's a big orchestral piece of music when the ship is discovered and that is getting at the same philosophical idea in a way this sort of connection to time and to history but it's selling it in a much bigger way it's like the grandness like how fantastic is that is this idea that the humanity is connected to its past and that we're we're all connected to the earth and we're all going to die and that history will repeat itself and so it's it's, it's sort of about the big emotions that that idea can elicit whereas the piano stuff is about the more personal reflective moments that that idea can elicit and there's other moods in the film as well like but that's just some of it that makes sense and i think some of the the swells and those real emotional climaxes and to anyone who hasn't watched it, it and when i was reading about it beforehand it seems weird to think of really having a strong emotional response to what on paper reads like a film about excavating an old ship basically it it yeah. sounds so well it, i mean it, it doesn't sound necessarily like a particularly fascinating or emotional story and yet yeah. it, it really is and the one that resonated most with me is when they're really digging into the ship and, and they start finding the actual smaller pieces of artifacts the jewels and items and um, I, I think it's a belt and it, it really hammers in like how much history that nobody ever knew about is right here and at the same yeah. time the music starts swelling too and i was like i i did not expect to be impacted like this particularly when it's in some ways the history of a country that is different from my own yeah yeah i mean it's a film about digging up treasure and that's exciting everyone understands why that's mm -hmm. exciting i think but it's interesting that you point out that moment in the film because that was a really important moment for me in, in terms of discovering how to score the film, working out just how much excitement I needed to give the audience there. I needed to to sell that moment with music, you know, to say this is really exciting and profound. And um, I had to sort of consciously do that, I guess, to, to write that, that part of it. Because when you're watching it, it, it's not obvious that it requires that level of excitement in the music i mean it's obvious now in retrospect when you're looking at it but yeah and it, it it works it it really just kind of sweeps you up into the moment 
like I said, I, I was kind of taken aback by it. I mean, it is an amazing moment to happen, you know, in, in a story and in history. So My wife's from the UK. She's actually from a town about 75 miles west of Sutton Hoo. So oh, right. it, was, it was interesting watching it with her because she had gone to the site when she was a kid and she was just really excited about it. And so having someone who has that stronger connection there with me, I think, amplified everything as well. Oh, that's interesting. Actually, there is an Australian connection to that area of Suffolk in that the Suffolk accent apparently is quite similar to the Australian accent. I think there was a large number of people in the convict times who came from that area to Australia. And there's a lot of convict songs, Australian songs, which come from the folk songs of that of that area in Suffolk. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting connection between Australia and that that area. That actually is. And it's, it's one that's obviously not obvious at all. Yeah, I guess our my ancestors probably some of them came on ships from that area to to, to these distant shores. So, and it's funny you mention that because you, know, you can say the same thing about the U.S. as well, where yeah, going back towards its founding, it's it's the same thing, and and I think that kind of goes in some ways towards the the philosophical aspects we've been discussing too, where history and lineage is also it's not a straight line either. So th- there is a lot of that shared history as well, and it's. It's just quite interesting to think about. Yeah, it is. And and we tend to oversimplify these stories, talking about the history of tribes and things, because, of course, the reality is so much more complicated, the interminglings of peoples. And I was reading a bit about it in sort of preparing for the film and just to get interested in it. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of controversy and a lot of different ideas and a lot of the myths we think about, the Gaelic people and the Anglo-Saxon people in England are apparently not true and it's all much more complicated than you realize i'm not surprised and so i i had read that you ran into a few kind of exceptional circumstances while you were writing and recording the score well yeah i mean the same circumstances that a lot of people in the world were facing in many ways yeah it was tough because post-production really corresponded with the start of the pandemic in the uk and we were living over in london at the time working on the film um i had my mum staying with us to look after my three-year-old daughter. We were both sort of working, me and my partner. But when the virus came, it was just, it was very difficult. She was 70, so we had to send her back home. And then my partner was pregnant and we are not UK residents as such. And so we just decided at that time we would make the leap back to Australia and we got on one of the last flights back before it got very difficult to get back. Because we didn't have a house back here when we arrived, we had to stay in a remote property outside of Sydney with without hot water or phone coverage or the internet. So trying to fir- finish my first feature film score uh, in a place like that was challenging, but also very inspiring because it was it's a place really surrounded by landscape and it has a big river going through it. And in a lot of ways, I guess it's a very different landscape to Suffolk, but it's a landscape nonetheless, and that, that earth is still connected to the same earth. And so it was an inspiring place to be writing, but it was difficult technically because I'd have to make these tracks and upload them to the director who was at that time in Vienna. So I'd have to drive up the track in a four-wheel drive and upload these quick time videos to him over a you know 4G connection on my phone. And then he'd get back to me about them. And it was a it was a strange process. It was difficult. And then when it came to recording the score, of course, none of the orchestras were open for business. And we were looking at everywhere in the world to record it. And the first place it opened up was Iceland, thank goodness. And there's a really fantastic studio there on the outs about three hours out of Reykjavik and uh, a little orchestra called Symphonia Nord and we recorded there with very 
highly spaced players that were a long way apart and um, managed to record the strings in two different takes, the high and the low strings, because we had limits on how many we could record at once. I think we were one of the first productions to be doing that at the time, you know, that Iceland had only just opened up. So we were at the forefront of that sort of experimentation of, of recording during COVID. And a funny side effect of it was actually that the strings, despite the fact there was only 20 per high and low, so four till together or so, but it actually sounds bigger than that, I think, in some of the recordings because of the spacing in the room. So nice little discovery was that you can get a bigger sound from less people if you space them in the room. Recording the winds was a real challenge because no one wanted to do that. It's, it's You can't really ask wind players to be in the same room with each other, although now I think we're finding ways of doing that. But at the time that wasn't really an option. And so all the wind players were recorded in London in their own bedrooms, basically, in home studios. So the whole thing was compiled together through these separate recordings, which is really a challenge because normally you record it all at once. You know, you just have some microphones in the room. It's really easy to put together, but it was a real challenge from my music production team to put that together and just to record it and to make it happen really at all. <laughs> yeah, and I was, I, was, I was listening in from Australia uh, overnight, you know, because it was Iceland time. So I, 7 p.m. I would sort of tune into the start of the session and then I'd go till 9 a.m. and I'd be very tired by the end of it and, and trying to give notes over Zoom on those sessions, you know, when it's four in the morning and you can't see who you're talking to. It's very surreal, very surreal. I mean, it seems so wild and, and no matter how many times I hear stories of people trying to record and compose during that time in particular, it never seems any more normal. You know, so many things have been normalized, and yet that experience still seems just so unreal. Challenging, yeah. Yes. It was surreal. I mean, it was amazing to have all these people, because no one was traveling at the time, I had there was people on those sessions from Iceland who were tuning in. I had one producer in New York, um, someone else in Quito in South America, people in London, someone in Vienna listening in, me in Australia. It was that sort of a surreal experience to have these people from different time zones all around the world in those locations, like connecting those places, all listening into this, this session. And that was sort of amazing just in and to itself. So, yeah, I could imagine. Now we've been back in Australia. I've been mostly working on some Australian projects here. And so I've been able to do recordings here in Australia. But yeah, and to be honest, because a lot of the work I do is in theatre, the theatre shows that I was going to do at the beginning of this year in Europe, I've had to pull out of because as Australians, we can't travel at the moment and it's very difficult to get back into the country. So I don't know, I have found ways, unfortunately, to overcome these obstacles, except that I guess I'm lucky enough in Australia at the moment that a lot of the world quite opened up and so it's possible to record and work here at the moment. So we're very fortunate. So are most of your projects coming up then in some shape or form theatre or ballet related? Most of them. I, I mean, I hope to be doing more film and there's certainly been some interest in that now that the film has come out. But uh, in the immediate future, yeah, I'm working on an opera actually that I'm writing for Queensland Opera here. And right now I'm working on a theatre production for a theatre in Sydney called Belvoir Street Theatre. Frankly, I'm, I'm not surprised that there's more interest in you composing for film. With you sort of almost jumping to the deep end like that on your first feature, did it feel like there was extra pressure on it? Maybe a little bit. I mean, I felt pressure from myself to make it good because I really wanted to do this and I really wanted to do it well. But in some ways, I mean, I've worked with Simon so much 
you know, it just felt like another project in that sense that felt very familiar. What was unfamiliar was some of the processes, I guess, just understanding post-production and, and how timelines work and what has to be done at a certain time. But in many ways, it's a lot more luxurious than working on theatre. There's a lot more money. There's a lot more people working for you. I was lucky enough to have a lot more time than I have normally in a theatre production. Sometimes I'll write all my music in a theatre production in one or two weeks because rehearsals start and you've got five or six weeks, but it takes a while before the, the piece finds itself. And so it's not really until a few weeks in that you can know what you're doing. So it felt a lot easier in a lot of ways. You know, it felt finally I've got all this sort of support. I've got these people doing things for me, which in theatre I have to do all myself. So I think if there was pressure, it was probably from from myself and in doing it. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of people speak to me about this film. And they're like, well, where did you come from? How did you get this how did you get this gig? You know, what have you been doing? And But I mean, I've been doing similar work, you know, in theatre or whatever I've been doing for, for years. So it doesn't feel like that big a stretch in that way. It's just that it's permanent. And because it's streaming on Netflix, a lot more people have seen it than have seen my theatre work, which is great. But actually, I've been doing this for a long time, you know, in a slightly different form. I think it's it's also a lot of people who work in film and, and do this stuff have some solo careers. I don't have that. I don't have any albums out. So people talk to me and they're like, who, who are you? What, what, what do you do? So I think I need to make a solo album, actually, so that people <laughs> understand that I exist or something. So that's one of my projects this year. That's uh, serious that you'd actually want to do something like that. Yeah, I want to do that. I want to do that. I've been thinking about it for ages. It's, it's about, you know, you want to make a solo album. Well, what are you going to make? I mean, there's so many things you can do. I could make a pop album. I could make a neoclassical album. But I think I'm going to make a neoclassical kind of album of instrumental music. So. So it's obviously that's in the works, but the very, very early stages. So we have no clue when we could expect it. Yes, it's early stages. It's being written as, as we speak. I mean, that's very exciting. And we talked about it before, where that is one of the issues with writing for theater, ballet, and opera now as well, because it doesn't necessarily have that permanence. To say that it's it's as if you don't exist is overdramatic, obviously, <laughs> but but in some ways it's it's kind of like that because people will, they'll check Spotify and they'll check IMDb or Wikipedia, and if they don't see someone on those, then it's like, oh, well, this person obviously just came out of nowhere. Yeah. Like you said, having something that's a solo album gives you more permanence and it's like no Stefan's right here yeah <laughs> yeah no you're right but it makes you real all of a sudden it's sort of what this film has done for me actually is it's made me real people know that I exist now which is nice or some people do it's exciting and I I don't know, I, I do think that is a in some ways it is a shame that the internet kind of makes things structured that way so obviously since you do have interest in composing for film going forward as well is there a particular project that you would be most interested in working on whether it be a, a style of music that you could write for film or a style of film or genre itself yeah it's an interesting question it's funny i've been talking to agents recently and they ask me this as as well a bit i mean the truth is i, I in theater i work in so many different genres and forms i mean as you've heard i did a show involving ambient noisy droning guitars and and this score for the dig is very, very different to that. At the moment, I love writing dots on the page. I love writing music for classical musicians to perform. I get a lot of satisfaction about of that. But I also like writing with electronics and, and sounds and guitars as well. Quite honestly, I would be interested in working in so many 
different genres. It's really more about the quality of the project and of the of what the story's about if I think it's engaging for me. And my taste is quite wide. I think in reality, if I find more film work now, the, the next few jobs are probably going to be in a similar world to The Dig because people understand that. And I, as I was just saying, I don't have a solo album. People need to understand what they're getting, especially when they're spending money on films. They cost a lot of money. It's expensive to hire a composer. Composers get fired from films all the time. They want some security in what they're getting. They're not necessarily going to trust me to write an avant-garde score straight away, even though I've done a lot of that in theatre, but they, they might not trust that. So I, I think probably the, my first few gigs are going to be in a similar vein to The Dig. But really, yeah, I just want to work with the directors and writers who I like and, and respect and who make intelligent, interesting, artistic work. Makes a lot of sense. And I, I would find it hard to believe that hearing your work on The Dig, someone's going to come up to you and say, hey, I, I like that score. Do you want to work on this generic action film? Maybe you'd find that really interesting, but it the connection doesn't seem there either. No. I mean, I would love to do an action film one day, and maybe I can find a way to do that, which is slightly different, but also embodies all the things that you need to do when you score an action film. There's a lot of particular things you need to do and marks you, you have to hit, but there seems to be interest these days in thinking outside the box with music and trying to find different solutions to it. So who knows what I'll get asked to do next, but the rules for different genres of film are different and require different ways of thinking about it, just in terms of where you put music and how it functions. But the nature of what that music is can actually be so many different things. Like there are so many ways to score a film or score a theatre show, particularly when it comes to to genre of the, or the instrumentation you choose like I could have chose I could have scored the dig with synthesizers there could have been a contemporary score with it there are many ways to to score films I don't think there's ever one solution um, that works there there are many interesting solutions to film scores I think I think I've at least I've noticed that it seemed like there's an increasing acceptance towards broader ways to approach scores as well the actual sonic palettes are Really, almost anything you could think of yeah. can be a film score. I mean, uh, like Johan Johansson in Mandy a few years ago, it was like a doom metal score, which yeah. wouldn't have existed in anything that was that anyone would have seen yeah. 10, 15 years ago. So it's it's really exciting. And I would imagine that for someone like you who has touched all sorts of genres as well, that's got to be exciting because you can get into a project and do or at least try out whatever you want. That is really exciting, actually. That's what excites me about working in film at the moment is I feel like there is that um, experimentation that's starting to happen. There is a bit more focus on production, I think, with film scores at the moment. You have to be a bit of a producer in a way to, to sell your work and to put your music to the film. Um, it's about sound as much as it is about what you write. And there's a lot of people who argue that sort of harmonically and just purely musically that that we've gone a bit banal with film scoring, you know, in recent years. But I think that's changing a bit. And I mean, I, I love the classic era of film scoring. I love Bernard Herrmann and Franz Waxman and all those people. I love that stuff and I miss aspects of that. But the wisdom in film scoring now is much deeper. You know, it's it's really about a deep understanding of how film functions on a psychological level. And so sometimes all you do need is a, is a tone, you know, in a, in a film and, and just getting that tone right is exactly what gives you the atmosphere. And, and that's right. I always like to push 
the director or push the boundaries of what a director likes when I'm working on a project in an attempt to try to get the most interesting thing we can, you know. So I like to start in a place which is a bit too radical for the project and then come back from there, which I did on The Dig as well, I think. Simon and I both started in a more radical place for this and did some experiments which were a lot more radical and probably quite wrong for the film. And we came back to a place which is really quite expected in many ways. It's probably quite a predictable kind of film score in many ways, but um, it's important to start in a more radical place because it's always easy to end up in a more conventional place. But at least if you start in a more radical place, hopefully little bits of that radicalness still make it in. And there are little moments in the dig, I hope, which are a bit unexpected still, possibly because of that starting place, I hope. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call the, the end product radical necessarily. No, <laughs> certainly not. <laughs> um, but I think even saying that it's expected is downplaying it because I listen to a lot of contemporary scores as they come out. And and I, I mentioned this earlier, there are a few composers that you can say, oh, there are similarities in style or it's it's reminiscent, but at the same time, yeah. it's also not something that stylistically and the way that it sounds is not something that you hear particularly often either. So even that just in the palette itself is enough to to set it apart from, I'd say, the, the vast majority of what's coming out recently. Oh, that's good to hear. I mean, I think even if you are doing a sort of known genre or a known sound, you've got to give it yourself. You've got to put yourself into it and make it your own version of that. Well, that's what I try to do. So, you know, pretend that I am this style of composer and and do it true to my heart and and then hopefully something comes out which is a little bit different at least and doesn't sound just like you're copying other people. And then you are that type of composer <laughs> if you can channel that properly. And you know, with with the the process and not just the collaboration, but the amount of eyes that are on any production, especially the larger it is, sometimes unfortunately that's kind of what's expected, that there's a, a particular sound that maybe the, the director of the studio are looking for, and their expectation is that you will come in and you will ape that sound. And at the end of the day, it, your job is to be functional and be there, but it seems like that would be a, an unfortunate fate, especially for someone like you who really wants to put themselves in their own sound into a piece of film music. Yeah, I mean, it's there's always that challenge of, the director or the producers want a particular thing. And obviously the, if there's temp music on a film and you're being asked to go in that direction, and that can be difficult, but I think you've just got to find your own way into that moment and just capitulate and say, okay, well, if, if what I'm doing is not working and I've got to go in this direction, what can I find in this temp music or whatever it is that they're offering me that I like? And what can I use to make my own sound from that? If you just try to replicate it, too precisely without understanding how it's functioning and what it is about the tent music that they like, then you sort of fail because I've made that mistake myself. <laughs> but if you figure out what it is that they like about it and you and you question the director, say, and say, why, why is it that you keep harking back to this piece of music? What is it about it? Then you go, oh, okay, it's about this adjective. And then and you find that adjective in the music and then you do your own version of that. I think that's the way to do it. But you do have to capitulate to the group I guess to because it's it's a, it's a collaborative process you can't just do what you want because if it's not working for the director and the producers and the editor then it's probably not going to work for 
the audience. So, you know, they're your first feedback. So it's, it's good to make them happy. That makes sense. And I think that's a, a sensible compromise, I guess, what a lot of people, especially film music listeners, think of when they hear temp music. It's just replicating the sound and not what you're saying. It's going deeper and trying to find more understanding and meaning behind it. Yeah. I mean, you can hear, or I feel like you can hear where composers have ripped off temp music sometimes in films. I'm never 100% sure, but you feel like you can. I was going to say, you've got to find your place to, to fight. You know, like you've got to capitulate on some things, but then you can fight for certain things and you just got to fight for the right things to make it interesting. But if the music that you've written is not working for the film, there's no use holding on to that. You've got to be ruthless and right. throw it away, start again. But you can still push for something more interesting. You just got to find the places where you can push and then the places you have to let go. And you, and you mentioned having worked with Simon previously, I'm sure that that helped with pushing the sound and, as you, as you call it, starting in a radical place. But have you yeah. had instances where either you didn't have that sort of relationship or the push wasn't as, I don't want to say resistanceless, but it led to some less than ideal results? Yeah, you mean where there wasn't enough sort of creative um, to and fro and therefore the result was something a bit bland? Because that certainly happens, I think, sometimes. Sometimes if you're left entirely to your own devices, you come up with something great, actually. I feel like that has happened to me on a couple of theatre productions where I've had a lot of freedom and I've done something great. But sometimes I'm left to my own devices and I just it doesn't come out quite right. It's, like, it's really important to have that to and fro with your director to help push you into doing the right thing for the production. But that's what it comes down to. I mean, whether the music is beautiful in its own right, outside of that, whatever. But you try to make it beautiful, generally speaking, whatever you're doing. But, yeah, the important thing is, is does it work for the, for the project? And it is useful to have a bit of to and fro and to push and to not fight, but, you know, just struggle over the ideas and, and push for what you think is important and they can push for what they think is important. And I think that's how you end up with something good. And if there isn't enough of that, then you do risk coming up with something a bit ordinary I think or just coming up with the wrong thing or coming up with something which is great musically which is then shines musically but then it doesn't serve the production you know I think I've done that unfortunately maybe on a show or two before where you you do something which people think oh the music is great but then you look back on it and you go huh but maybe I shouldn't have done that because it didn't serve the show quite as well as if I'd done something a bit more boring I think that there, you raised two things in there. Well, you've raised many more than that, but two that immediately yeah. come to mind is is yeah. one, like, of course, it, the, the main goal is that you're, you're there to amplify you know, the film or the production, but also sometimes, too, even if that the score succeeds in that, it can be jarring if the score is significantly better than what the end production is as well. Not, not to say that the better alternative is if you're working on something that isn't going to be good to make your score worse, but it's just yeah. an interesting result that happens sometimes where you watch a, a film that there's been $50 million spent in making it. But the thing that you come away with is, Oh, well, I didn't, I didn't like this, that, and that, but the music was good. I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting outcome. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It makes me think a little bit about Johnny Greenwood's writing for film and, and, Johnny Greenwood is someone I admire a lot as a composer and has, has inspired me a lot, particularly his score for Norwegian Wood, I think was one of his earliest scores, which I just found incredibly unexpected 
and brilliant, you know, like it served the film so well and the writing in it is really unusual. But it's interesting because sometimes I think in his scoring, maybe more recently or in the last five years or so, you know, he pushes the boundaries, I think, of what what works. Like sometimes I think it jumps out too much for me. And at the same time, uh, I appreciate that he's doing that and and that P.T. Anderson is also taking that risk in, in doing it that way because they are stretching what's acceptable. They're not just falling into the ordinary mold of what's what's there. So I'm sort of in two minds about about that stuff. Sometimes it's like it's like oh, is that is that going a bit far with it? But at the same time, oh, thank God that you're you're not just doing the the usual thing and that you're pushing the boundaries of that. That's a really interesting point because I think it's something that people quite forget that in the in the grand scheme of the arts, film is still in a relatively nascent stage. There's so much about creating film and scoring for film that not necessarily that we don't understand, but that just hasn't been tried or hasn't been discovered. And so without people pushing that to figure out what new things do work or may work or what new things may not work, it would lead to a sense of stagnancy in a, a medium that hasn't been fully discovered. So I love so much seeing experimentation, even if it fails, because at least it's it's trying something new and, and trying to push those boundaries. So it, that's it's just such an important important step for the the medium itself. Yeah, it's really important. And I yeah, I've certainly watched all of Johnny Greenwood's scores. So no, there's no problem there. I mean, we are at a nascent stage. I know what you mean, but at the same time, we are at a well established stage in film. Like it's it's a golden era of film still. I think we've been doing it for many decades now. And you think about the history of, of opera, you know, starting at Monteverdi or something, and, you know, Baroque opera only went for a couple of hundred years and it became classical opera and then it became 19th century opera. And, and they're really very different forms in many ways, the way that they work musically and had through composition come in in the 19th century, which then, of course, influenced a lot of early film scores. So there is a, a natural lineage there. But how long's film been around for 100 years or so now? That's actually a good amount of time to have a sort of established a, a really good body of of work and 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 the medium so i mean we've got i'm sure we've got a few more hundred years to go before it becomes what opera is now which is sort of a outdated medium but but yeah it's, it's a rich time for film i think yeah all right so i'll i'll, I'll take it back it, it saying it was no, 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 no. stage is too much <laughs> maybe yeah no i know exactly what you mean but yeah. there's still much more to come i mean you could say that baroque opera after it had been going for a couple of hundred years was still nascent like it didn't brock opera didn't really find its true thing for a hundred years or 200 years after that it's it's just so funny because at the same time just like you said it's film has been around for 100 years almost literally everyone that's been alive their entire life has been surrounded by film yeah and yet to think that oh well it's still in the early stages or it's it's just maturing we have no idea yeah. how much longer it's going to go and where the medium could be in a decade or 50 years is it's really exciting. I think it's also a little bewildering, but I can't yeah. wait to see where it goes. Yeah. I mean, the trend for these, for TV series now is really interesting. You know, these sort of longer form works because in a way, like a film is a novella, you know, it's, if you want to turn a, a proper novel into a, a film, you've got to, you've got to use a longer format. That's really interesting as well. That the, the episodic nature of the TV series. and Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a whole nother discussion just i mean even just scoring for tv it's not something that i'm as familiar with but it, it carries with it so many other opportunities and pitfalls that i find particularly fascinating if you, you can have a mm. series that lasts for five six seasons and 
to hear a cue come up in season two and then yeah. again in season four. It's yeah. it's just a a level of filmmaking and, and music that, like you said, is not available in yeah. Well, in 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 theater and plays in um, opera or in film. Yeah, you can maybe do it in really long form theater. The sort of the eight eight hour works. You can do that sort of planting an idea in the first ten minutes and coming back with it seven hours later. But that's a rare opportunity to work on a seven hour work. Well, I was going to say, I, I prior to this, I didn't know that there were uh, <laughs> there were seven hour plays. So that is that you didn't is know anyone would sit in the theater for that long. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> but you know what? I, I say that I'm I'm fine listening to the three-hour Philip Glass operas, so what's another yeah. few hours? Yeah, Einstein on the Beach, how long does that go for? Five hours or something? I think it's something It's like quite that. long. Yeah, some great music in there. Oh, he's great. Uh, uh, Nixon in China is fantastic as well. Yeah, we can wrap this up. Well, right, I, you've got some material. It, yeah, I've, I've got plenty to work with. <laughs> okay, I hope I didn't crap on too much. No, no, it was, it was great. great. So I, I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks. Nice to meet you.